0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Zach Ziegler, and for Christopher Conover. This week, a look at two school funding issues in the legislature, one solved and one still looming. One of the most contentious issues in Arizona in recent years has been how to fund K-12 education. Protests, legislative deals, and voter initiatives have all played a part in how Arizona's schools get their money. This week, the legislature waived the Aggregate Expenditure Limit, a more than 40-year-old voter-approved law that caps how much money public school districts can spend each year based on the formula. The limit is typically waived by the legislature each session, and this year marked a change as bills went through both chambers in bipartisan votes without any talk of other moves in return. So, what did the waiver avert? Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn, a Republican, gave legislators an idea of what cuts loomed at the start of the legislative session.
1: As someone who, as the chairman mentioned, served 24 years on a school board, I can tell you that the great bulk of the budget of a school district is personnel. So we would be talking about massive layoffs of teachers and the one third of teachers who are left unable to hand the numbers handle the number of students that parents had sent to be educated, it would be an incredible disaster and it would make it impossible to raise academics.
0: Despite Horn's lobbying efforts, the bill still met some opposition. Fourteen state House members voted against it, while seven senators opposed. Among the yes votes in the House was District 21 Representative Democrat Consuelo Hernandez whose district stretches from Tucson, south to Nogales, and along the border to Bisbee. She's also a member of the Sunnyside Unified School District Board. I represent a majority Latino, African-American, mixed population of students who at this point were playing games with their lives as well as everyone in education across Arizona. I think this is a no-brainer, to be quite honest with you, and I commend uh, Representative Cook for bringing this forward. I don't think this should take that much courage to vote to lift an artificial cap that was placed in 1980. Among the no votes in the House was District 17 Representative Republican Rachel Jones, whose district covers many of the suburbs to Tucson's east and north, including parts of Vail, Marana, Oro Valley, and Tanca Verde. She noted that she knows at least one of her area's districts, Marana Unified, is, in her words, doing it right.
2: I don't believe that that's the case with all of the school districts, and that's where I have hesitations. I also wanted to have a guarantee that we would be able to stop doing temporary solutions to this and kicking it down the can down the road and actually getting something permanent and fix this once and for all so that it doesn't have to put these school districts through the stress every year of wondering if they're going to have their funding or not. Um, I do believe that This is not a funding issue for some districts. It's a mismanagement of funding issue. So that's another one of my hesitations on this.
0: The senator from that same district, Republican Justine Wadsack, also voted against the bill. She noted that many of the school districts in her area do a good job, but she leveled a number of accusations at the Tucson Unified School District.
2: When it comes to TUSD, it's incredibly disappointing to know that when we went through the 20% in 2020. Our teachers actually in 2020 received a 4% decrease in pay. They're actually losing money. They're getting paid less. I don't understand how that even happens. Uh, We keep giving money to the schools, and the teachers are are losing. And I thought all of this was supposed to be about the teachers and the classrooms and the students. we need to have systemic reforms, and they need to benefit students, families, and teachers, and that is not happening right now, not in most of my district.
0: AZPM reached out to TUSD about Wadsack's claim. District Superintendent Gabrielle Trujillo responded in an email that said in part, quote, the senator's statement is inaccurate. In fiscal year 2020, teachers were awarded a $1,500 increase to their base salary across the board, The normal salary step for teachers is a $500 increase each year. However, the district's union, the Tucson Educators Association, said it agreed with the spirit of Senator Wadsack's assessment, noting that the raise was well short of the 20 percent that was promised. One person who was at the Capitol on the days of the votes was Beth Lewis, the director of Save Our Schools Arizona, a group that advocates for public schools. She joins me now. Beth Welcome.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So the legislature beat the deadline by a few weeks this year on the aggregate expenditure limit despite fears that this could go up until the last minute. Do you have any thoughts on why this wasn't a last minute push to get this resolved before it became an issue?
2: Yeah, I think there are a few things at play. I mean obviously you know we're first, we're very excited to see this being done um, to make sure that our schools can stay open to ensure that teachers are not laid off to keep the $1.4 billion in schools that the legislature promised. um, I think that there was a tremendous amount of public pressure. We went through this last year. And so the public really knows and understands the issue. Um, We also had the business community really step up. um, And we had local leaders say, we don't wanna close down schools. We need to keep them open. And all of that sort of created this perfect storm um, at the legislature here where it really became a situation where they couldn't keep this going until March 1st and they simply could not use it for political football any longer.
0: So one group we heard speak up in favor of passing the AEL waiver this week was the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. That's one that a lot of people have made note of. Why would public school funding become an economic and business issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, public school funding has always been a huge economic issue Um, in a lot of communities, especially rural communities, our local public schools are the number one employers in the area. Um, But it's also just, you know, we're talking about $1.4 billion into the economy, this would be, you know, a huge, huge economic hit to our state if those funds were not allowed to flow to our schools. So I
0: mentioned in the introduction that you were at the Capitol on the days of the votes. We, we actually have you uh, on a Zoom meeting right now from there. Uh, what role does someone like yourself play in lobbying or pushing a matter like this through?
2: You know, I think the dynamics were a little different this year, having Governor Hobbs, um, you know, at the helm. But we... Uh, just go down and we talk to lawmakers and we explain to them the importance of how this impacts kids and parents and teachers and and the local communities um you know we were able to pair a lot of great folks in our network with lawmakers to make sure that lawmakers were going to take this seriously um and and so it was really great to see that so many people lifted up their voices in support of public schools we know arizona voters and arizona families love their public schools and so you know, seeing that play out here is really important for our state.
0: So there were a number of legislators who, when explaining a no vote, said their concern is with financial oversight of schools and school boards. What do you say when that concern is mentioned to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, we saw that there were very few no votes. I mean, that the people that voted no are really sort of being you know, pushed aside as this extremist caucus that nobody is listening to. They are making themselves irrelevant with this rhetoric. We all know that Arizona schools are funded 47th in the nation. We all know that schools are not getting what they need and it has nothing to do with, you know, whatever they say, administrative bloat or lack of regulation. In fact, our schools are you know, I would say overregulated um, to the point where teachers are really struggling to do their jobs because of the folks down here that keep pushing these awful bills.
0: Now, you briefly there uh, mentioned money. Uh, we did hear also from some who dissented that they say there is plenty of money and it's on the schools to spend it more wisely. Do our schools spend their money wisely?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I was an educator for 12 years. Um, I've seen the ins and outs. Uh, I've toured schools all around the state as an education advocate and leader of Save Our Schools, um, and it's evident to me that we just simply don't have enough money. It's like trying to tell a family that's absolutely broke that, you know, they're irresponsible for buying dinner. Um, it, it's just, it's fear mongering at its finest and it's got to stop.
0: So these votes require a supermajority and thus bipartisan support. How does that change who you reach out to when you are pushing for an effort like this?
2: You know, I mean, we, we've always made a push to reach out to lawmakers regardless of party. We are nonpartisan. Um, but I think that, you know, lawmakers on both sides are really listening on this issue and they know that they have to come to the table Um, And, you know, I think, like I said, having Governor Hobbs at the helm really changes the entire dynamic, and I frankly was glad to see uh, her and her office really, for lack of a better phrase, like hold their power, because they could have been pushed into a situation where they gave up a lot in order to achieve this, and that did not happen, and I think that that's a huge victory, because The extremists who voted no on this would like nothing more than to strip more funding from public education and to attack our teachers. And so Hobbs did not capitulate. She held her power. Her office did too. And here we are.
0: So the AEL is something that has to be overcome every year. It seems like it'd be a big hurdle in the battle for school funding. We heard at in a statement from the governor's office that uh, she would like to see this repealed permanently. Uh, Do you have any plans to try to push to get that kind of a permanent repeal at any point?
2: Yeah, I mean, we know it needs to go back to the voters. So we firmly believe that Arizona voters will support this effort um, in repealing it. This is a 43-year-old law. I think Arizona voters understand that it's outdated and that you know obviously it it doesn't apply if we keep hitting the limit every single year it's just sort of a archaic law at this point um but that will require the legislature putting it on the ballot or you know another mechanism and i would very much like to see the legislature do that i think there's you know definitely a common understanding down here that that's what needs to happen um but some folks are listening to special interests and lacking the political will to do it.
0: So you say you'd like to see the legislature do it. Uh, do you think there is enough backing to get this on the ballot, maybe in 2024 or sometime in the future?
2: You know, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. I think a lot of it will be tied up in budget negotiations. And it really just depends what um, the priorities are coming off the ninth floor. and you know, what sort of percolates down here at the Capitol.
0: Now, there is another way to get it on the ballot. That's through signature gathering. Uh, Do you think there's the kind of stomach or or the kind of want to go that route, which can be a little more uh, lengthy and take a fair amount of time and money for an organization?
2: Yeah, I don't I don't know about that. I mean, I, I think that the legislature knows that it's incumbent upon them to do it. And so. Um, I think it's a lot wiser and more prudent for us to just put pressure on the legislature to take care of it. It's really in their purview.
0: Oh, Beth, thanks for spending some time with us today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Beth Lewis is director of Save Our Schools, Arizona. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Zach Ziegler, and for Christopher Conover, who's off this week. We're looking at K-12 school funding and how it moves through the legislature. While the aggregate expenditure limit is one potential funding shortfall that must be addressed each year, there's a new issue this year that could still hit school budgets. Empowerment scholarship accounts, also known as ESAs or school vouchers, originally allowed selected groups of students to take the money that a public school would receive for having them enrolled and use it for private school tuition or costs for homeschooling. Last session, the legislature expanded the program so that it is now available to all students. The Center's think tank, the Grand Canyon Institute, recently published a report that shows these scholarships are largely taken advantage of by students from wealthy families. Dave Wells is the research director at the Grand Canyon Institute. He spoke with Christopher Conover last week. So let's start with the big picture. All of us have heard about vouchers
3: or ESAs, as we call them here. What exactly are they?
4: Uh, well, they, they're, they're vouchers are empowerment scholarship accounts for the folks who want to frame it in a way that sounds nicer, um, are, are essentially ways in which uh, public money is used to pay for private schools or now homeschoolers. Now, it doesn't go directly because that would be unconstitutional. So it's essentially uh, parents receive a debit card. Um, And the debit card is then used to, to spend on money. So the parents actually technically receive the money or the guardian as opposed to the school directly.
3: Is there any restriction because it's a debit card? Is there any restriction at all what I could use? I could use it to pay for groceries or gas in my car or whatever. Or are there restrictions on where it can be used, how it can be used?
4: The expenses have to be approved by the Arizona Department of Education. Um, but that doesn't mean that there won't be question marks about what that entails. So certainly, um, so paying for a private school tuition is going to be a clear thing. They'll be okay with them. Uh, it gets more complicated when we think about the homeschooler environment um, and other ways in which the, it might be um, spent. So um, say you're planning um, an educational trip for your child to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Uh, and so exactly... The question is, like, what, and I don't have the exact answer for you, but the, the question is, like, what would be a permitted expense in that sense? It fa- ends up being a family trip, so presumably only the expenses of the child are accounted, but what about all the transportation costs and all those kinds of things? And what about the fact that other parents don't get to deduct that? They don't get to get the state to pay for those trips to the Monterey Bay Aquarium.
3: So what changed with the passing of House Bill 2853? When it comes to ESAs, because these aren't new in Arizona.
4: No, ESAs have been around for roughly a decade, uh, and but they've been gradually sort of the foot in the door strategy. You know, originally um, they were intended for what, quote unquote failing schools and also uh, for kids who had special needs. In fact, it's been uh, documented a lot of special needs kids use it, and it can be quite helpful in those cases. Gradually, it's been expanded and expanded. Um, there was an effort in 2018 to expand it, um, and then the uh, Save Our Schools. Uh, organization was able to uh, put that on the ballot as a referendum, and the voters rejected that law. However, that didn't deter the legislature, uh, and the legislature um, last year passed what became the first state in the country to pass what's called a universal voucher. Because of the expansion, do
3: we know how many kids are going to be benefiting from ESAs or how many families?
4: I anticipate that essentially every private school, uh, child is going to be benefiting. It, it's always it's hard in, in the past because uh, in Arizona, we've, before all this happened, we had roughly 60,000 children in private schools. Um, it's a little bit unknown exactly how many are in homeschooling environments. And we found in our analysis that uh, based on the average zip code, there typically were wealthier zip codes that were more likely to apply for these programs than the low-income zip codes.
3: Why do you think your research showed that Higher income zip codes are using the vouchers, the ESAs, more than lower income, where often we find lower performing
4: schools also. I think it's in part because um, most of the private schools are religious schools. It was the opening up of the program, because there, there are ways in which people at, at lower income levels could already uh, uh, reach the program, especially through the student tuition scholarship organizations. The ESA, by making it universal, essentially opened it up to uh, wealthier households in a much more open way in which it, than it had been before. Um, and I think that's what led to the significant increase, uh, at least by average zip code uh, income. And as you probably know in the rural areas, there's actually very few private schools, uh, And so in a lot of our lower income zip codes are actually in rural areas and they don't really have access to programs like this because there are no private schools that they could use.
3: People, critics especially of of the vouchers and ESAs, often say, "Well, this is just taking money from our public schools." Is that a correct assessment? Where does the money come from for the ESAs?
4: Well, it comes from the state budget, and I I think this is where things get a little complicated. So, the way district schools are funded is uh, we have an equalization process. So, district schools, depending on how wealthy the the property tax bases are funded partly by the state and partly by uh, local taxpayers for their property taxes. Now, when a child enrolls in a, enrolls in a charter school or a private school, um, that those, those fundings are 100% from the state. My net calculation is that if, if these programs potentially draw more from the state resources than um, district schools used to, and especially if they're from higher income areas, because higher income areas would get um, the least state support and the most local tax, property tax money. Uh, so as a consequence, I think this there is some truth to the idea that these programs essentially drain resources that could potentially go to district schools.
3: We've seen from the Joint Legislative Budget uh, Committee, they told the legislature that ESA expansion has caused about a $200 million unbudgeted cost to the budget. That number could double next year by their estimates. So what does that mean for those seeking ESA vouchers uh, and those in public schools? Well,
4: it's part of statute. So in terms of the amount of the money that it's in an ESA is 90 percent of what um, they would get if they went to a charter school. So charter schools get a a base funding amount plus about two thousand dollars extra Uh, which was justified on the basis that they can't uh, bond and do things that district schools can do. Uh, And so they get 90 percent of that amount uh, for that. That's in statute. And so as a consequence, I mean, there's no real control over it other than the fact that uh, when students enroll in it, the state has an obligation to fund it. Um, It wasn't there was no cap placed on it. Um, There's also no accountability placed on it. So there's no financial or scholastic accountability uh, in this program.
3: I'm guessing this program, largely, it may be tweaked, but it isn't going away. There are other states like Florida now looking at universal vouchers. What have they learned, if anything,
4: from Arizona's experience? Well, we don't have much experience yet, So, uh, at least in that context. I mean, there has been scholarship uh, on private schools and uh Private schools, especially in math, um, have generally struggled. And there was a pro uh, school choice group that did analysis, for instance, in Ohio, and they found significant uh, shortcomings in the math learning in private schools. Uh, and so, and that's been sort of an ongoing uh, pattern uh, that, we're concerned about. And because there actually is no uh, re- requirement for any kind of testing or, uh, or academic accountability um, and private schools are free to be teaching whatever they would like to teach they're not required to follow any kind of state uh, curricular guidelines but we don't have any evidence that this is actually good for overall education it's part of good for the ideological approach to education
3: and as you said in arizona at least our experience is it kids who are living in rural areas, which is geographically most of the state, don't benefit from these because they just don't have the opportunities to use them.
4: Right. That's true. And I think it's one of our, you know, we have a lot of really small school districts in Arizona. um, And it's really, um, you know, important to be supporting them as much as possible. We have a lot of school shortages. Um, There was a Washington Post article about how in uh, Bullhead City, I believe it was they were bringing in teachers from the philippines um, and those are all to me are indicators that we've got a significant structural problems in our uh district schools that especially in rural areas uh and it's important for us to sort of think about how do we best address those things these kinds of programs like this sort of are distractions from a dealing with those fundamental problems that try to make sure that those schools can be as successful as possible and again we do have you know some really wonderful schools so we have a very sort of robust charter school program that's worked Uh, somewhat in rural areas, not as much as in urban areas. But private schools are a whole other area because they're not overseen. They don't have to provide audits or any kind of accountability. So it's going to be a
0: very uh, different world. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Oh, you're welcome. That was Grand Canyon Institute Director Dave Wells being interviewed by AZPM's Christopher Conover. Arizona is not the only state that has plans to expand public money going to private schools or homeschooling. The Florida legislature is considering a similar expansion this session. To learn what this bill has in common with Arizona's voucher program, Chris also spoke with Lynn Hatter, news director at NPR member station WFSU in Tallahassee. They started by talking about what specifically was in Florida's bill.
1: So our bill basically removes all of the income cap restrictions Um, here in Florida. What we're looking at is something that people have long called universal choice. And what it means is that all of our tax credit scholarships, all of our state funded scholarship programs would be open to anybody regardless of their income. Now, the legislation would make it priority for families that are about 185 percent around the federal poverty level, they would still have sort of first get at these. But otherwise, there are going to be no income restrictions. In addition to that, students and families would also be able to use these scholarships for supplemental educational supplies. If they're in homeschool and they need to buy books or, or those sorts of things, the scholarships would be open to those families as well.
3: What has been found in Arizona is most of the kids using them are from higher income zip codes. And part of the reason is Arizona has so much rural area that there are just no private schools in the rural areas to use them in. Any concern about that in Florida? Because, of course, Florida has had some vouchers for years.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Florida started this program by really focusing on lower income kids. In fact, um, when the first uh, corporate tax scholarship program rolled out 25 years ago, it was supported with bipartisan support basically because it served the lowest income students who coincidentally are also either Black or Hispanic. Um, And because of that, it enjoyed a lot of support for years. A couple of years ago, however, the state began increasing the income caps um, and eligibility levels. What that meant was more and more families with higher incomes could then come into the program and be able to use and consume this product. And so now, in removing all of the income cap restrictions, you are starting to hear a lot of people looking at this and saying, so wait, a millionaire could basically get free private school tuition? You know, what about families who are making all of this money who can afford to do it themselves? We're no longer serving sort of the population of students who, at the time of its creation, the advocates for these programs said needed it the most. And so that's a really big point of concern here. What about
3: the finances? And I know this is early in the process, just going through its initial committees in the legislature, but Arizona discovered after putting this in place a year ago that now there's $200 million in unfunded liability because of this program for this year. Next year, it's estimated to be double and on and on and on. If it doesn't get changed, is anybody talking about the finances in Florida?
1: Yes. People are already raising the question of how much is this going to cost. Right now, the state of Florida has listed the financial part of this as indeterminate, as in it doesn't know. How much it's going to cost? And this is a really difficult question um, because right now the current spend on our programs is about $1.5 billion. Um, But these programs are funded two different ways. So not to get too far in the weeds, but you have one part of our voucher programs, which are funded through donations, um, through corporate tax donations. That's money that never touches the state budget anyway, right? So you don't have to worry about that. But then you have the other part of our scholarship programs, which is funded through state money. Um, there was a recent report that came out that said Florida could possibly spend another $2.4 billion, depending on how many people um, decide that they want to pursue Uh, these scholarships under the expansion. So the price tag might be coming in closer to about $5 billion when it's all said and done, but we still don't know.
3: All right. More to come, it sounds like, as you all move through your legislative session and we move through ours.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. Check in with us anytime. We'll compare notes.
0: That was Lynn Hatter of NPR member station WFSU in Tallahassee, Florida. And that's The Buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes at azpm.org, and you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Thanks to production assistants Samantha Larned and Phil Howard for their work on this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Zach Ziggler. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.